Welcome to a, another edition of Rick Willis in San Diego, and we are joined by a very special guest. His name is J.T. O'Sullivan, John Thomas O'Sullivan, but he prefers to go by J.T., and he is a dude. And I, <laughs> come on, dude, you're a dude. You know you are. You're a dude. I'm you're just going to let you keep talking, dude. Well, no, because you got a Heisman Trophy vote as a Division II quarterback. Give me a freaking break, bro. I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, Let's start with that. Come on. You go to a D2 program because there's no more D2 programs for college football in California. You go to a D2 program. You create, I think, one of the... I mean, the UC Davis is like amazing. Let's start right there. How the heck did you end up... So you went from Burbank, right? Yeah. How did you end up at UC Davis? That's my question. Uh, well... The long story is my dad was a worked for the attorney general's office as a lawyer. We were in Burbank, where he was at LA, and he uh, we just they didn't love our neighborhood, and so they were looking for a different experience. They both my parents grew up in North Hollywood, right. and so we moved to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to Jesuit up there, which is essentially like uh, Saints, San Diego, all boys yeah. Catholic school. Had a great experience playing sports there for the most part. Won a lot, and then I just wasn't good wasn't good enough to be a more big time recruit but i knew i really loved football and loved sports and looked across kind of the landscape of the college football process at the time got a couple of opportunities to walk on at different low level division one what would have been double a at the time fcs now right uh, schools and just decided i had a great connection with the davis coaches loved that davis was a program that i thought put a lot of people out as coaches too and so it just had a long history of both the quarterback position in coaching, that was kind of the path that I thought I was on at the time. And I just got a chance to keep playing, to be honest with you. I was really fortunate to kind of come into a situation at Davis, Division II ball, and a school that had really kind of mastered that level of football. As non-scholarship Division II, we were probably as good as you could possibly get. And so just had a blast playing and then just kept playing. You know, I was looking at some stats on you, bro. Like, I'm shocked you. Did you get drafted at all Major League Baseball? You hit like four fifty, and I mean, bro, I w- bro, you're you're talking, you're preaching to the choir. No, I'm joking. The uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish. To be honest with you, I just didn't get along really well with my high school baseball coach, and that probably yeah. impacted my experience there. But my first love growing up, for sure, is baseball. Uh, I coach all three of my kids, or have coached them in, in baseball, and uh, I love the sport. I really do. I wish I, I joke around with all my got a couple of buddies down here that have gone through the Padre organization that I missed right. my calling with the guaranteed money. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice way to go if you can make it happen. Yeah. My first introduction to you, because I always do my research on people. So it was back in 2001, September 29th of 2001. And I was like looking and I was like, whoa, this guy, JT he's pretty darn good. And my introduction to you, bro, it just still makes me laugh because I talked to your wife about it, where you guys were, I used to work at KIEM up there and, you know, the NBC affiliate up there. And uh, yeah, I, dude, it's, it's like podunk. You, I mean, you know, podunk and it's total podunk. And I was like, okay, I need to do my research on JT. And I did my research on you and and then I watched you play and I was like, dude, this guy's like really good. And you were, you guys were like rolling them. And, 
And I'm going to let you finish the story from there. So I, I still remember it. You were going toward the, the, at the Redwood Bowl for Humboldt State. You were going toward, it was the, the home side in the corner and you spiked the ball on the guy. Well, yeah, let me, I'll build some, a little bit of context for you. I was definitely a fiery player and really kind of used it as a strength and kind of tried to, I don't know if about capture or elevate the energy of what we were trying to do as a program at the time, trying to you know compete for a national championship. And so I, it was just part of how I played the game. And so that same drive, I don't remember if it was the same drive. I think it was, uh, I got a penalty called on me for, I, I used to, I used to wear an old towel. So the mm-hmm. old school towels used to, I used to cut it in the locker room and like fold it over my belt. And so it didn't have elastic or Velcro on it. So you couldn't pull it off. So if you grab both sides of it, it would be like grabbing onto a loop on my belt because both sides of it are kind of hung down like this. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just stop you? So, so they wanted to penalize you for that? Well, that's part of the story. So because you couldn't pull it away on a scramble, someone grabbed it and wouldn't let it go. And I ended up dragging them a few yards. I would say, you know, five plus yards on the ground. Yeah. And uh, this guy got up and was talking all sorts of shit, like just like talking about like, you know, how he got me down and how they were going to roll us and this and that. And uh, we just got into it face to face and we both got personal fouls mm-hmm. for like talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, that same drive, I think that we'll go with the story. That's the same drive. That same drive, I scramble for a touchdown, corner the end zone. I have mm-hmm. to jump over someone to score right. and end up flipping and landing on my feet. Yeah, and, it was amazing. And, and I, I felt like I threw the ball just up in the air. Well, in reality, it went probably about as high as I could throw it straight up in the air. I ended up getting another personal foul, two uh, personal fouls, and you're kicked out of a game. So very rarely do you see a quarterback get kicked out of a game, but I found a way to make it happen. Well, I mean, you guys beat them like, I think at the final was like 56, 21. They, I, I don't, they, they didn't need you after that. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, they're about to roll these guys. But talk about being a leader, you know, because that's one of the things is with being a leader is a lot of people don't, you know, you talk about your baseball coach, but a lot of people don't like other people's leadership, the way that they lead. Some people lead in different ways, but you know, you as a, as a championship football coach now, (laughs) you have to treat, especially now, you know, in this day and age, you have to treat everybody differently. Some people you have to coddle, some people you have to yell at, you know, can you talk about being that leader on that, that UC Davis team? Yeah, well, you, you put it on a T for me now. It's a little bit easier for me to answer that, you know, 20 years later as someone who, you know, I, I have a PhD in leadership studies also. So it feels like the, you know, an unfair toolkit that I wish I had access to at the time. At the time, uh, I was most concerned with going out there and finding ways to win football games and score touchdowns and have big plays, those types of things. I think from the things that I did well there, kind of probably subconsciously that I probably still try to gravitate towards now is just kind of authentically be myself. You know, I, I think that there is a level of when you start talking about influence and being a leader in that position of playing quarterback on a football field in America, that comes with a certain expectations that I think can be seen as, you know, a lot of guys maybe try too hard or not really themselves, whether you're a rah-rah guy or you're a, you know, a work hard guy. 
And there are elements of optics that go into that position as far as being the first the facility, you know, working hard, how you communicate with people. But I think the, the most important part of all that stuff is just your capacity to adapt to the situation. So if you're around a group that needs energy, that you can raise the temperature in a room, then that's what you do. If you're around a group that needs to be maybe babysat a little bit or kind of pulled along in a certain direction, you have the capacity to pull and push the group. I think at that time, I probably was much more of a pusher than a puller, but having the capacity to do both when you influence groups and large groups, when you're talking about American football, uh, is something that I've always loved. I've always thought it's one of my favorite things about playing the position. And uh, it's just one of those things I was fortunate enough to watch a lot of really good guys go through it and try to steal little things that I can make my own, but always be comfortable you know, in my own skin to start when it comes to that kind of uh, capacity. It's interesting because we, you know, we talk about baseball and then we talk about football. And one of the things with baseball, I'm convinced I don't that the catcher is the smartest person on the field. You know why? Because they're looking out like that and they're they are they see everything versus being the center fielder where you have to look that way and that way or the shortstop who's, you know, your, your, your best player, but it's the same thing. There, there are two people on a football field that I believe are the smartest people on the field. And those people are. Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah. I'm going to say quarterback and I'm going to say center. Dude. I get it right. You got it. You, you hit it on the head. Your boy Hardwick would be excited about that. Hardwick. Dude. Hardwick was one of the smartest people that I have ever met in my life. You took snaps from him, right? Uh, I mean, a little bit. Uh, It was fun to see. It was fun to see Nick and Phil kind of how they worked. They were a unique combination. I really loved their kind of working relationship and to get ready to play and how they performed together for a really long time. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for centers. Uh, I think it depends on the system a little bit, but overall, it certainly uh, certainly does help to have someone that you trust to uh, ensure your protection to at the highest levels. Absolutely. Speak to that because, you know, when I, I, you know, used to, you know, work in media here in San Diego at KUSI for like 20 years. And I used to do stories all the time. And Nick said that Phil was the brightest guy he's ever, he had a photographic memory. And then Phil said that Nick was the smartest guy. When you have that cohesiveness like that, explain it to me coming from a quarterback. I mean, that sounds like a love fest. I'm sure it was to a certain extent. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. There was a lot of respect and trust <laughs> in that. And, that uh, you know, we got a little awkward. But no, I, I think that there's a lot that goes into that. I think that there's some carryover between centers and quarterbacks because you can really tell, like any job, really, but very few jobs you hold so much of your kind of like literally your health and livelihood to the protection element of playing quarterback in the league. And when you have someone who you feel like can really help you with that and kind of you can work as almost like a pair in making sure that you've got the best protection, best matchup consistently in and out, no matter what kind of exotic you're going to see on Sunday football. Uh, I just think it's a level of comfort that a lot of guys don't have the luxury of playing with. And so to see those guys do it at a high level. The other thing about it is to get a peek behind the curtain for me. I was there for a little bit just to see how they kind of met and shared information and shared thoughts and shared what they were seeing, you know, to have another set of eyes out there to do that in a, in a game is, is really a luxury. And I think that those two guys definitely did do it at a high level for such a high time. I also love, at least when I was there, what they were doing protection wise with more 
had a lot of freedom that a lot of other systems maybe right. were bounded by rules or you know what the coach was comfortable with. He he also knew what he was Norv knew what he was working with with those two guys and allowed them a lot of the tools to fix what they needed to fix at the line of scrimmage, which takes a lot of a lot of confidence to ensure people to do that at, at that level of football. We're going to get into what you're doing now, but let's talk about, you know, bro, I, I mean, I can, this thing can go on forever, but I know you have stuff to do in your life and so do I, but let's talk about you being a high school football coach and bringing Patrick Henry their first championship since 1994. I believe there was like a Heisman, there was like a Heisman Trophy winner that played for them then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ricky Williams. Ricky Williams went through there. Yeah, so they def- yeah. They definitely had some talent. They definitely yeah, had some talent. Talented. Just talk about because a lot of people don't want to deal with the new age of kids and the way you know. Because I'm old school like you, dude. If somebody was talking talking smack to me, you know what I'd do? I would drop the ball right on their face, just like you did. You know what I mean? But I mean, I'd like to see that. That would be, yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting here and I'm just running up the score on you. But, but with that being said, now in the new age, you know, you go and you win a championship for Patrick Henry as the coach. And I mean, that dude, they have had a lot of really good players to go through there. I've actually had a dude, Desmond Patton, who plays for the Colts. He's a receiver yeah. on the podcast. And, you know, just just talk about the new age of, I guess, kids going through what they're just dealing with kids when you come from a, you know, because you and I are probably roughly the same age, but going through that. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I might push back to think that it's like necessarily there are certainly elements of, of quote unquote like new age stuff, but I think young people are pretty consistent across you know the recent history. I think that they maybe are different levels of expectations for a lot of young people now, just because they have so much access to information. So there, there might be a, a more way that they feel entitled to why, you know, all this stuff is happening. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And I think that that's good, you know, for all sectors, whether it's football, education, you know, right. whatever they're going through. And so for me, I just bake that into the process of how we teach, how we coach, try to be as teach them, try to create a kind of system and process and experience that treated them like young adults that mm-hmm. had high expectations. But I don't know, you know, I basically told them this is the same system uh, expectations I would have if we were at the college level. You know, there's certainly different things that go into the pro level, but uh, we tried to create a great experience through them, for them, through kind of building up the system to have an opportunity to win a championship. And really, at the end of the day, you know, my impact on it was negligible compared to the actual students and players. We got really lucky to have a number of really good players, and it makes me look like a really good coach when, you know, you know, you could insert uh, damn near right. anybody in there with a really good player and say, hey, go right. get us a championship. So that certainly helped, too. You have uh, three kids, right? You yeah. More? Okay. So how do you, you know, because I, I have a daughter. How do you raise your kids in the sense of being respectful, being mindful, being, you know, whatever, whatever? I know this is like a a random, a random question, but th- I mean, this yeah. is no, this, this is, is reality. This is real life. Yeah, this is real life. I think uh, I'm really fortunate to have Laura to be able to collaboratively do this thing and to be able to kind of have similar goals and uh, aspirations and expectations as far as behavior 
you know, whether that's talking about please and thank you, simple elements of it to expectations for education, expectations for, you know, how they conduct themselves across the board. And I think we try to model the way we try to be explicit about what the expectations are and how they might have raised uh, expectations than their peers, than, you know, what they maybe see across different lenses of social media or uh, media in general. And it's just to be really uh, explicit with what the expectations are and then try to hold them to a high standard. Not because, you know, we think that they're necessarily better than XYZ, but that the fact that we think that they have the capacity to probably achieve more than they even realize. And mm-hmm. to just be uh, be consistent in that behavior. And uh, I think it's important to model the way, but I also think it's important to inspire them to probably be much better people than both Laura and I are and, and to be able to give them the runway to be successful in that same regard. One of the things you just said that, because uh, I make sure that I listen to, you know, when I'm when I'm doing these, one of the things you just said is that you hit a bar and then you raise the expectation of what you're going to do. And, and I, I think, I mean, I, I almost want to want to say it comes down to like, I go to therapy and stuff like that. And the guy told me, he goes, you have not, he goes, you have only tapped into what you can do. And you as a coach, you as a father, you as a husband, you as an influencer, can you tell me about, I mean, what, what, what is your, your vision of that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's hard to project it for someone else. I can speak anecdotally for myself. You know, I, I think it's a combination of things. If you would have gone back to you know, maybe how I would answer that as a young person, I probably wouldn't have had the capacity to be able to say, hey, you're going to be able to live your dream uh, as an NFL quarterback for 10 years. You're going to be able to have a great head start on life uh, because of it. You're then going to be able to influence young people through either coaching or through kind of online education in a sphere and sector that allows you all sorts of freedom to basically do whatever you want. And you're going to have the responsibility to be a husband and father to three boys. You know, it's one of those things I don't know if I would have been able to grasp at the time. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's just about being able to kind of have an idea of what you aspire to, but be flexible in that same regard and, and forgiving to yourself if those things change and to be able to change them in real time, but to, you know, set that vision, set that idea and just put your head down and see what the hell happens. And I've been really yeah. fortunate on a, I've been really lucky on a number of different levels, but really fortunate also to be able to just put my head down into something, dive into something, become uh, as immersed as I possibly can, and then come up and take a breath, look around and realize like, that was a great experience. Like for as a high school coach, that was a great experience on a number of levels. I got to enjoy it and create a great experience for our players. And now it's on to the next. And you know that whatever that next chapter is, you know you have an idea, but you just I've learned that I can I know uh, what my expectation of hard work is, and what I can do when I'm pointing it in a certain direction, and to just enjoy the process of it as much as anything else. But just go where my own curiosity takes me. But realize that just because I can't imagine it at the moment. Doesn't mean that there won't be some great outcome uh, at the end, as long as I feel like I'm moving in the right direction over the course of the process. Hey, you know, I, you and I are very uh, similar in how we're, you know, we look at the, at the world kind of, I guess, in a way of, you know, it's not black and white. There's so much to it, but I've I've kind of buried the lead here. You were drafted in the NFL by the Saints. You uh, played for what? Frankfurt. You played for 
the Saints, you played for the Chargers, you played for the Lions, you played, you started for the Niners. I mean, you know, yet, and the thing is, is, is everybody kept on burying JT, burying JT, burying JT and saying, you know what? Because this is, this is a question that I, my sister and my brother-in-law, they said, how did you keep on going knowing that there's always somebody up here who wants, you know, you're like kind of the, I guess, the backup. And, you know, they always want somebody better. What was it like being a 10-year guy and, you know, going from practice squad and there had to be some frustration, maybe? Or sure. no? No, no, I mean, there were massive frustrations. But it, to me, it was never, you know, I never, I guess I've always had the capacity or at least developed a deeper capacity to, to hold multiple lenses at the same time. So I can be crazy frustrated and pissed that I got cut and I'm not where I think I deserve to be on a depth chart or for whatever right. reason. And then I can also realize that I'm living my dream. This is what I've wanted for a long time. I've done, I put my absolute everything I have as a person into this process and I'm going to suck the absolute you know, marrow out of this experience to make sure right. that when it's done, I can rest easy knowing I did everything I ever could to maximize this opportunity. And as long as I felt like I was doing that, you know, the result, not that it didn't matter, it mattered less because I realized that I poured my entire essence into the process of making sure I gave myself the best opportunity to be successful. And the other part of it is, you know, I just had a weird self-belief that that I belong and felt like I deserved the opportunity and I was good enough to do right. it. And it didn't matter that one organization thought I wasn't or that a third of the league or two thirds of the league didn't think I was. I yeah. thought I was going to, and I was going to do everything I could to, uh, to kind of take advantage of that and just see what happens, let the chips fall where they may. But you know, when you're done playing, you're done playing for the most of us, right. for most of us. And so I just really wanted to put everything I could into that. And then I use the same approach and lenses now in whatever the next adventure is. For people listening to this, it's a story about getting knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. And, you know, cause, cause it's, it's happened to all of us and, you know, I've been there and everything like that. How do you have a, such a positive attitude about it? You know, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's always a positive attitude. That would probably be disingenuous to paint it like that for me. It was more of just being able to say like, Hey, this is what I want. Yeah. I know that this is not a forever thing. This mm -hmm. is probably one of going to be the greatest temporary job I ever have. It's tethered to one of my childhood dreams. I want to maximize it and to be able to be okay with the ambiguity and uncertainty of what being on the bottom, you know, tier of the roster looks like as far as turnover and everything else. But I'm also acknowledging the fact that you know, I was paid to play a game for a decade yeah. and, uh, you know, it was a game that I love and have a lot of respect for. And in that same vein is why now I, you know, I still feel like I'm drawn to the game on some levels just because it had such a huge impact and was really a trampoline for my life that I feel like there is some element of the game that will always be a uh, part of you know, what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. They say that the best, the best position on an NFL team is backup quarterback. And the reason yeah. why is you just, you hold the clipboard, you look at the plays, you know, everything that's going on, but you're also not having a, you know, 275 pound defensive, you know, defensive end, bearing down on you and to turn you into what a, a, a lot of people have turned into, right? What, what yeah, would you I, say about that? 
I would say most people that say that have never been an NFL backup quarterback. You know, I, I think that there is a perception of that. And I think that there's some value in that and truth in that. You get paid a lot to not play, uh, almost like an insurance policy. But the other thing, I think if you're in that role and you have that perspective, you're not going to last very long because at some point you're going to have to play and you're expected right. to go out there and play at a really high level and basically have no practice reps. You know, I, I, it's not like, uh, you know, your local little league where you, everybody gets a turn up you right. know, at the station. The NFL starter gets every rep. And so you're going to have to go in there and play a game without any practice, throwing to guys that you don't have a lot of chemistry with and go out there and have to win some games for an organization. So the, it's a unique capacity to be able to do that, get up for those situations. I always used to tell people that, uh, you know, every Sunday that I didn't play, felt like I died a little bit because, you know, your, your window of a career closes, whether you're acknowledging or not. And so when you're not playing, it almost feels like you're like red shirting, but you don't get the eligibility back. You know, right. it's very, this thing is coming to an end and you feel the time sensitivity of it. And so just to be, you know, again, to hold the, both of it, like, yeah, it's great to be on an NFL roster, but damn, I wish I was playing. You know, like, yeah. I, I got to find, I got to play. I got to get better. I got to improve. Uh, all those types of things that go into it. But also, I get it. Yeah. Hell yeah. If I was going to, you know, get paid and not play, not get hit, uh, certainly my body is thanking me for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you played for what? You played for what? I, I want to see. I think I counted 10, 10 team, yeah, 11, 10, teams, 11 including teams, Frank, yeah. uh, including Frankfurt, right? I always say 11 teams. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You were in those meetings with a lot of incredible quarterbacks. I think Aaron Rodgers, right? Yeah. For a hot second. Yeah. Philip Rivers, Stafford. Never Stafford. Favre, Brady. Okay. So perfect. What do all of those guys have as leaders? And what did you take from that? Because you know, a lot of times they say there's a reason why we have one mouth and two ears because you need to listen twice as much as you should talk. Yeah. I mean, that, what did you geez, take from those guys? I took little bits and pieces from all of them. I think the first thing that's, that's important to acknowledge, and I think that, that this kind of goes without being said, but to a lot of guys who aspire to play at any, well, anything in a high level, all those guys were really good quarterbacks. Like they could throw the ball really, really well. They almost always made great decisions with the ball, with the organization. And so if you can't play well enough, you know, you don't get the opportunity to be the leader, quote unquote, to say. And so the first thing is just the the skill set that all of those guys had. And, you know, whether it's guys like Tom Brady or maybe even guys like Philip, who people think on the outside, you know, the perception is that he throws funky or he throws weird. Like you go in there and watch him. He's accurate. I mean, he is lethal. He's precise. And all those things that I think are hard to comprehend when you just watch it on a broadcast on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So besides the, the first level, is just their skill set. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing, and I talked about it a little bit, but they were, many of those guys were just authentically themselves. You know, but depending on when I caught them and their career, I was around Brett towards the end. You know, so it's a little bit different when you're the old guy in the locker right. room, I think. But guys like Brady, guys like Philip, who were part of the locker room, you know, generated like real authentic relationships with everybody who walked into the building who understood the importance of team, all of those things. I tried to take and hijack and make my own, but you know, they're all have the capacity to be both the alpha right. and kind of the, the, the follower all at the same time, you know, they're, they have to follow the head coach. They have to follow the coordinator. They have to follow the plan. They have to elevate their teammates. And so all of those things, I think go into it. I always think of the best quarterbacks that I was around the guy that I always aspired to be is the guy who, when you walked into the huddle, you could see the huddle 
kind of chirp up, like elevate up, like, okay, we're going to be all right. Like this guy, he knows exactly what he's doing. We're going to be fine here. And that, that part of it goes a long way to being able to kind of have that confidence that's contagious uh, for an offensive football team. I will tell you with what you just said, one of my favorite things about Philip, I just remember when we were allowed to go into the, into the locker room there and Philip would just walk up to one of the guys. Doesn't matter if it was a defensive guy, offensive guy, and he'd go and he'd whap him on the butt and go, woo! And what does that do for camaraderie? And what does that do for, you know, I mean, because people don't understand when you're there on that 53 man or 54 man now, whatever it is, roster, you need that camaraderie. And you want that fun guy, but you also want him to be that dude that's, I guess, that you can trust. Does that make sense? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is an element of a guy who can get along with anybody on the roster that can make quarterbacks more endearing to their teammates. You know, you hear guys like, I would, I want to play for that guy or I want to play for that coach because there is a level of uh, him being authentic and caring. Like he knows you, you're not just another Jersey number on the, on the other side of the ball. And so whether it's, you know, things that might get you in trouble in other workplaces as far as uh, you know, personal contact that are sacred in an NFL locker room. I'm not saying everybody walks around, slaps each other on the asses, but that, that team certainly did have a unique vibe when it comes to that. But it was one of those things where, you know, I think whatever it is, you know, in any workplace, you can tell the people that elevate the location, elevate the team, elevate the group of people. And you just want as many of those as possible. And when that one of those people is the quarterback, I think it's a uh, it's a compounding factor that impacts the quality of that team, that quality of that experience for those guys on the team, the organization. And I think it really is palpable and you can feel it, but you also can't uh, artificially create it. That takes time. That takes trust. That takes going through battles together, going on the road together, those plane flights home together, those things that are built over time with the core of an organization that I think can resonate and elevate a team to new heights and Kind of you see how this past year with the with the Bengals as far as kind of burrow and that contagious infections energy that someone's skill set and approach can kind of galvanize a city all of a sudden. You know, it's a, it can take on a, a whole new level of confidence uh, that I think is is unique to the quarterback position. With that being said, is let's talk about your recently we'll call it our taking a break from being a head coach, Patrick Henry. But you you now have your QB school and I was watching it. I was like, dude, because I, you know, I, I, I love football. Like you love football, like the Mike and the will and, you know, all those different things and protections and all that. But is part of what you teach in teaching quarterbacks, because that's what you do now, right? Is that, is that kind of one of your, one of your gigs, one of your gigs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that thing has kind of taken on its own kind of sector for me and how I think about football. I started it just thinking, hey, do I finish grad school, have time on my hands? And was like, you know, do I want to get back into football and how do I want to do it? And so my brother's in the podcast game and the content creation game. And so he was like, I'll help you set you up. You know, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't do a podcast. I'd do a YouTube channel. Right. And so I was like, all right, I'll start there and really just put my head down for a year to see if I liked it. And uh, I love it. And it, it allows me a lot of freedom to be able to come at the game from the ways and approaches that I think are interesting. And so it's fun for me to be able to kind of make an impact in the world and the reach of it. It's kind of unsettling how big, obviously 
the YouTube space is. Not that I tackle anywhere near the capacity of it, but just the idea you have that a lot of followers, bro. You're like at like 136 or 146 or something yeah, like that. Thousand, not 146 people, but like I, I'm kind of jealous of your of your following. I'm just letting you know. I appreciate it. It is fun. And it's a great community of people that really love ball that are aspiring for it. And it's not necessarily just, you know, people who play the position. It's kind of like diehard fans, people who just want more access to it. And really, I created it from the lens of what I wish existed when I was coming up. So I always felt like there was like this hidden mystique about, you know, what are they doing in the league? What are they doing at high level offenses? How are they coaching, you know, the position? What is this really happening? And I try to be, try to put my kind of uh, honest lens on what I think is going on as best I possibly can. And then it's kind of emerged into other things where it's, whether it's through the Patreon community or through the courses that I offer to the, the, the channel, that's really where you know, I can dive into the depth that, that I really want to provide to people who are just starving for information. So with that being said, obviously, you know the game. But let's just backtrack for one second and talk about or as part of what you teach and what you do, because I am a huge believer in something that you were saying, you you have to have the locker room and being just like a good person and getting the locker room and getting people to trust you where you walk into that huddle and they're like, okay, this dude, he's got it. He's got it. Is, is that part of uh, what you teach? In spaces, you know, I, I think that the channel itself is a little bit more film centric. Uh, there are certainly the, the beautiful thing about it is just obviously the medium allows me to talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. So yeah. whether it's, you know, going down the rabbit hole on certain things that are pop culture or going rabbit hole on more leadership stuff as far as influence and what that looks like. I've certainly touched on all those topics. I don't necessarily, you know, major in them because I think I try to respect the audience enough to know what their expectations are when right. they when they click on a video. But yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about it, right? Like I can do whatever I want. And yeah. so, yeah, that's certainly an important part of it. I think, you know, maybe moving forward, it might be grow, continue to grow on that element of it. So much of that, though, to me is is almost less specific to football and more specific to just overarching uh, leadership and your capacity to influence. I think it's magnified when you start talking about football because it's large audience. People don't get an opportunity to lead large audiences very often. You know, whether you're you know, speaking to a large group or part of a big organization, you know, usually you're doing that kind of like ad hoc on the fly. And so to, right. to be able to, to teach that a little bit, I think is fun because I think that's where I have the most fun in leadership in that space. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's certainly an important part of specifically playing quarterback. So yeah, people have the expectation that, you know, you're the leader. Uh, the other part about that that I always talk about is I push back immediately usually when people start by a do you lead like this? How are you? What's the leader like? You know, I'm always more excited about the process of leadership you know, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the both sides of it, like you're, you know, at some point, everyone's a leader and a follower. And to be able to kind of go back and forth with what that looks like and understand what motivates you, what you're trying to get together, mobilize a group to do at a high level. And it's just on steroids in the NFL where the money is there, the attention is there, the TV is there. And so everything is magnified. The leader and follower concept, a lot of people don't like kind of get that at all. How hard was it for you? Because you know, when I first saw you in 2001, like you were, I could tell you were, you led that team, like you were the dude. And how did you, and then you ended up getting a, what, leadership studies degree from San Diego State, correct? Yeah. Uh, right? uh, yeah. From the University of San Diego. University yeah. of San Diego. Okay. It's not as good as San Diego State because I'm an Aztec, Aztecs for life. 
Um, <laughs> but I think most um, disagree. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking, man. But the thing is, is to be able to lead, but then also listen. How long did it take you to figure that out? Uh, I mean, I think I've always known it in parts. You know, I, I think it helps when you kind of break apart the process of what it feels like to influence. And when you do your own kind of reflective work on your own journey about maybe when you've been influenced the most, you know, it's probably come from some element of listening or modeling. And so just to recognize your own journey and what that looks like and how you've been influenced to then be able to kind of mirror it when the opportunity comes for you to then be the influencer and the, the quote unquote leader of the process. But, you know, to me, I've always been someone who probably defaults to listening rather than talking, you know, whether it's a, a kind of thing about being nervous about saying the wrong thing or just realizing that, you know, the timing of what it comes from, if you're going to be, you know, a quote unquote influencer of a group, very rarely, I think people resonate towards the first thing that's said. So to just understand the timing of influence as well. And so I've always just kind of gone through it as someone who's been fascinated with the spectrum of what that looks like and learning about leadership and influence. But I, you know, for my own personal journey, you touch on, you know, a few different things as far as in the college world, it was to your point, when you're the one of the better players on the team, it's easier to kind of fall into that default role versus me, you know, when all of a sudden I go from that to being in the NFL, where my role is consistently, you know, more of a backup your capacity and lens for leadership is going to be different. And when you're only on a team for you know a season or a few weeks, and what that looks like to be able to iterate between all those situations, you know, you're all of a sudden the new kid at school every other year. And so just to be able to, you know, have a toolkit strong enough in your leadership wheelhouse to be able to acknowledge it, realize you know, where your strengths are, where your blind spots are, and uh, do the best that you possibly can. So, We'll move forward here with it was it was funny because, you know, my my daughter, she was, you know, diagnosed with leukemia and I worked through Rady and then, you know, and I get a call from this Laura Sullivan and she goes, you know, you might know my my husband. And I said, yeah, what's his name? She goes, JT. I said, oh, my gosh. And then I always I always go back to the. Cause that's still one of my favorite that honestly, that's my favorite football memory from up there <laughs> from up at, at Humboldt. Like I couldn't stand those 13 months I was up there, but, but, but I said, yeah, I said, honestly, he was one of the best players that I ever, ever watched do what he does. And, and I said, and I don't know how you put up with him and three boys. A lot of dudes over here. Not going to lie. It's a lot of dudes. Yeah. So let's talk about Laura a little bit because she was, you know, her and I worked together for Rady and raising money and stuff like that. Let's talk about your wife. How did you guys meet? Uh, Espanol, Espanol 2. Uh, no. Met in, no, 3 actually. Oh, geez. I misspoke. Uh, Spanish 3, college, Davis. Yeah. Met in the 90s. Uh, no way. It doesn't feel like it's been a long time, but when I say it, that's been a long time. Yeah, no, she's a rock star on many different levels and uh, just a just an absolute, you know, best person, most caring person that I know. And I uh, certainly think Grady's is lucky to have her. And uh, she's just kind of found her niche, making an impact in the world across the nonprofit sector. And just does a great job bringing people together as a connector, is one of those people that just automatically elevates everybody in the room when she walks into it, whether it's kindness or warmth or 
having a good time, making everybody feel comfortable and just a kick-ass mom too. Yeah. And can I ask you as a, as a dad, do you sometimes go, wow, I can't believe that she deals with me and then our three boys and yet does all this other stuff and just is amazing. Cause I personally think that I think that Laura is one of the most amazing people that I have ever met in my life. Yes. Uh, I agree on all of those things. Uh, I think it's great. You know, she was kind of so locked in when the kids were really young that now getting a chance to go back and kind of follow her kind of career uh, aspirations and how she's making an impact in the world, whether it's locally or more in the San Diego region. It's just been so fun for me as someone who's just a, a massive fan of her and her success, but also as a model to the kids that, uh, you know, as a mom, she's able to go out there and do everything that she does at such a high level and enjoy it and just love the, the impact that she's making on the world in whatever sector she's focused on at the moment. It's just been, uh, it's been a great treat to see and you're just fascinated to see. Uh, I'm just glad that she allows me to be along for the ride. Are the boys more, I, I already know the answer to this question. Are the boys more afraid when you get upset or are they more afraid when, uh, when Laura gets upset? I would hope that they're equally afraid. <laughs> I think it, it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> it's probably not true. It's probably a different answer for each of the kids too. You know, uh, I think it depends. I think we really do try to be, make sure we come at it from the same team. You know, we don't really do the good cop, bad cop thing. I think that, you know, uh, we're on the same page and which makes it not easier, but smoother as far as just understanding, you know, really fortunate to come at this from the same underlying values as far as what we value in a family and time and the expectations and all of those things as far as creating a loving, caring home environment that, you know, provides safety, but also elevates and uplifts. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, there have been moments where each of us has probably scared the hell out of the kids to a certain extent. I just, I, I just ask as a, as a father and as a, you know, there are certain people that I'm afraid of in my life and, um, you know, like my sister, when she gets upset, I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, because she does the very like low tone. She's like, uh, yeah, uh, the cat got out last night and you let the cat out. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, so sorry. I'm so sorry. You you get what I'm saying, though, right? You know, sure, yeah, I mean? you, you hit him with the disappointment card. You know, yeah. Some people some people do the elevated voice. Some people do the, uh, the disappointed nod and the stare. I probably have uh, more of just kind of the, the pissed off stare more than anything else. But but Laura certainly has her own toolkit to uh, to incite some fear into the kids. But you know we should, we're we're also you know bro I'm so spoiled on so many different fronts that uh, you know, we're we're fortunate enough to have three young people that uh, are pretty well behaved for the vast majority of the time. They they deserve to be bragged about the vast yeah. majority of the time. So we uh, we're lucky in that regard. Okay, let's let's talk about San Diego, man. You know, I know Laura's from San Diego. And, you know, ultimately this podcast is just, you know, with people that I that I know and you know, I just lucked out with, you know, Laura saying my husband's JT and then give me your cell phone number and then now you I'm sure I'm gonna be blocked after this. But uh but <laughs> but with that being said, what is it about San Diego, man, that makes you like that puts a smile on your face. I mean, there are so many things. I'm a California kid through and through, you know, from LA, Sacramento, Davis, uh, lived in the Bay 
for a few different times. And I just love San Diego, you know, for obviously the main, you know, what most people love it for is just the combination of weather and vibe and uh, the lifestyle that it provides just so consistently. It really is, you know, unlike anything else. And it is a weird, also a combination of, you know, transplants as well, you know, there's beyond you know, myself included to a certain extent where it's a welcoming environment for the most part. And uh, there's so many great things to take advantage of lifestyle wise that I just uh, can't get enough of it and really feel fortunate on a number of different levels to, uh, to kind of landed here, luckily. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing. I, I grew up in San Diego. I, I, you know, I was, you know, I spent two years up at in Huntington Beach and I've been to LA and lived in, in Eureka and stuff like that. But there is no place like San Diego because this is my personal feeling. It feels like home, man. Like, it doesn't matter. People just welcome you into, you know, it's not like LA where they're like, hey, uh, you know, or, you know, the Bay Area or, you know, where wherever it is or people up in, you know, Eureka that are that are like smoking weed outside of the building at KIEM. You know, in between in between shows, you, you know what I mean. Thirteen, you had a rough thirteen months up there, bro. It was the, uh, oh, dude. I trust me. I do not miss it one bit. Yeah, I mean, I also love San Diego. I've lived here longer than I've ever lived anywhere else, and uh, you know, certainly don't not going to leave anytime soon, if ever. And uh, but I'm also a California guy. Like I can appreciate all those other places. I think it is, uh, you know, my own personal experience in San Diego. We lived in Ocean Beach, Point Loma, for ten years, and then moved over to Coronado, where Laura grew up once our kids were kind of going to school and you know, there, there are certainly elements specifically of Coronado that I don't necessarily love, but I also recognize that it's, you know, it's like a fantasy Island to a certain extent, you know, it's just a ridiculous environment of a really unique sector of people that bridges kind of the military life with a lot of, you know, local San Diego, but also realize that, you know, it's not real life like what it costs to live here and what it costs to, to buy a home here some places and to kind of understand what that privilege looks like just to be able to kind of paint the picture of that, especially for our kids who are growing up here that only know this. But at the same time, like, I love it here. We love it here. You know, it is home on a number of different levels. And uh, to have the support of your family around certainly helps also, but I just can't get enough of it as far as what it allows you to be able to do and what your normal uh, is as far as you know sitting outside in february doing a podcast yeah, i see i see if people knew what i was looking at right now i mean i'll i'll probably post some of this on uh, on my youtube channel and and stuff like that but you're i and there's blue skies that are that are going off the windows right behind you bro yeah i mean well, we're really lucky we we got fortunate enough to uh basically to build a house around a porch so we definitely tried to uh enjoy our outside time here with that kind of that kind of lifestyle. I love having my little outdoor office here, but it's a, uh, it is, man, it's a special place, bro. I mean, it's uh, the, the vibe, chill, the, uh, being surrounded by people that you love and support you certainly helps. But, uh, you know, at the same time, also don't move here if you're trying, if you're thinking about it. So it's all cool. <laughs> it's so expensive. I have so many trying to get with my clients, their houses. It's just like, Oh, it just, it drives me nuts, but you know, and I don't do the Coronado area. I do Carlsbad, La Costa. I'll do wherever, but I mean, where you guys are is like, that's like gold where you guys are. It really is. I mean, it's just not, it's just not real life. 
to be honest with you, like, uh, for instance, I know you're in the, the real estate thing and like our way at a house across the street go on the market recently. And like the listing price is just a joke. I mean, I, it just, I, I don't understand. Like it, it's, it's a weird thing, you know, as, especially as a, as a father, you know, like you, you hope that your kids hopefully, you know, want to live close to you at some point. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that that's realistic uh, to a certain extent, you know, to have that expectation as far as what this is. And I, and I, I get it that this is, it's almost like a, a fantasy area as far as that. But there are many pockets of San Diego that are like that. It's not just over here. It's there are certainly elements of it up and down the coast. But uh, man, you're you're talking about like Orange County to me, bro. Anything north of the eight or east of the five, I'm not familiar with. Yeah, should I tell you what's so funny when you talk about your kids living next to you? My my daughter is. We're actually working on it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you up because I know you you know people up there at Davis too. But I've already started but she wants to be a veterinarian and i know that davis is the best vet school but you know you know what i'm gonna be when she does get that scholarship and everything like that to go i'm gonna be a weepy mess when she's up at davis like for real right you know I mean, it's not that far you can do worse than davis i'd be i'd be excited for her. it's uh that's tough <laughs> That's a that's a tough school. That is a tough school. It will be weird, you know. It's it almost feels like it's so far away that it would be weird to acknowledge. But we're certainly really fortunate to to kind of be enjoying this part of uh, parenthood, where you get a chance to kind of see them become the people that they're you know on track to be is is a pretty right. cool thing to uh, to see unfold and just kind of hopefully create the uh, scaffolding to allow them to uh, to maximize whatever they uh, decide to do. Okay, so now we'll, we'll we'll finish this up here. I texted you and told you that I always finish the podcast with three questions. So, who's your best friend, by the way? I got Besides a Laura. Buddies. Huh? Uh, it, would, it would probably be a, a small group of friends that I went to college with. And, and okay. In addition, with my brother. Okay. So you want? Do they live out here in San Diego? Uh, one of them lives in San Diego. I was fortunate enough to coach with at Henry. Uh, most okay. of them are in Northern California. My brother lives in Perth, Australia. So definitely have what? not gotten a chance to see him in a long time. Oh my yeah. gosh. Wow. So we'll have to make sure that your brother gets to hear about this. So you want a person to come on here because I, I, I love food. I love cooking. I love finding new restaurants and stuff like that. But that's the thing is, you, you know, I'm going to ask you, you're going and somebody says, hey, you know what? I want breakfast. And they say, JT, I want one last breakfast in San Diego. Where do you take them? Oh, well, I'm not going over the bridge. So we're going to stay in the island. Okay. Uh, we're going to get in the golf cart. We're going to go down to Clayton's. It wow. is uh, it's a little, I would say most people would probably think of it as like a diner. Mm -hmm. But the locals probably go to the walk-up kind of order window right. and uh, get... I'm probably going to get some variation of like an acai bowl. Yeah. But it's got the full menu, allow you to do everything. It's a donut. It, uh, now you, you got to bring your patience because it's island time down there. And if there's oh, five yeah. people in, if there's five people in line, it's going to take 40 minutes to, uh, to get your order. <laughs> but it is, uh, it's worth it. It's, uh, it's got some good people watching. It's, uh, it's where all the yeah. locals go, you know, hang out in the morning, say hello. And uh, you certainly see, you know, probably 10 people that you know along the way. And so right. it's, the, it's the full experience over here. Okay. 
So they're just about to leave on the plane. They say, hey, JT, let's go grab a bite before I head out on the plane back to whether it be Perth, Australia or, you know, or Detroit, Michigan or wherever it may be. Where do you take them for lunch? Oh, for lunch? Uh, we're going to stay in the same kind of, uh, uh, yeah, I guess we'll stay on the island. We'll go, I personally love the Brig. I know there are a bunch of Brigs mm-hmm. in San Diego, the Brigantine. Uh, but the one over here, we'll probably go get some fish tacos. Mm-hmm. I, I live, I go, I don't know about you. Do you, I go back and forth about how I feel about putting cheese and lettuce on my fish. But I think to get like the fish taco experience, I'm okay with for a lunch. As long as there, can I tell you, being a San Diegan, as long as there's like some good hot sauce on there. I don't know. Are you a hot sauce guy? I'm definitely a hot sauce guy. Yeah. Oh, thousand. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I, I the best hot sauce I ever had is from uh, like from this this uh, girlfriend brought brought it back for me from uh, San Luis Obispo, and it was oh, it is. I I can't remember the name of it, and I see it right now in my in my head, but it's it's absolutely delicious. And if you put that on a fish taco. And you put cheese on that fish taco and you put the cabbage and the lettuce, it is. So, so as much as I was singing the praises of my wife earlier, I do now that we're talking hot sauce, I'm going to tell us a quick story about her, how she tried to kill me. She, the, uh, have you ever seen the show hot ones on YouTube? I think it's on YouTube. So yeah, it goes through like the full spectrum of different hot sauces. Yeah. And for a long time, especially when I was first getting into the channel thing, I was, just looking around, seeing what people were doing. And I fell in love with this channel. And uh, so much so that I bought one of the hot sauces from there. It's like usually the eighth one or seventh or eighth one called the bomb. And uh, I got it thinking that I was going to try it out on like wings and just kind of do like a little dab. And Laura, I fell asleep one day taking a nap and she thought she would do me a favor and cooked like a dozen wings in this sauce. What? And, oh, no. and so I, she's, and I, I don't know. I, it was my own fault to a certain extent. I ended up eating one of the wings with this sauce and I literally thought my face was going to come off. I have <laughs> never, I have never ever experienced anything like the pain that I experienced for, I'm going to say, I'm going to say over an hour, I had, I had bags of ice on my face. Oh I had my freezing washcloths on my face. I was laying down. I was basically incapacitated and it was on one wing. Now I ate the whole wing, but like I, it almost ruined the show for me now. It's so, oh it's so unbelievably fucking hot that it, it just destroyed me. And, uh, <laughs> What'd you do with the rest of the wings? Bro, it's, it reeked the whole house up. Like I had to like, Oh really? I, went out, I mean, it was like, everything in my eyes. Crying. I could barely see. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was it was like no experience I have ever. I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I don't know how. I, I'm convinced that that guy doesn't eat that, that. There's no way that you can eat those things consistently because it it just crushed my soul. Oh my god! I, I love I love hot sauce too. Like that part of it, but I can't do like the uh, those like challenges and stuff like that. I've tried yeah. to do those challenges, but it's a uh, it's tough. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! I wonder if it was a ghost pepper or whatever. I had ghost pepper one time. You ever had the ghost pepper? Yeah, those things are like those are that's like eating a tortilla chip compared to what this the bomb sauce really? is. I'm telling you, I thought I thought I drank lava. Like I mean it was 
It it just I don't ripped. even laugh, bro. But that but I, bro, I I mean I'm telling you, nothing I, I love hot. I order Thai food like eleven and yeah. I can't it was brutal. Oh, she oh tried to kill me. Okay. So now um all right, we'll finish up with this one. Now you're gonna go for a nice dinner. Your friend and their significant other or their kids or whatever, you want to say, hey, this is what San Diego has to offer. This is these are the kind of restaurants. What's the dinner restaurant you go to? And it can be, and I, I will I will preface it with this. It can be, it can be like. Because there's a lot of places that are just, I mean, run down, but they make the best food or, you know, high end. It doesn't matter. What is it? I'm going to go, well, I'm going to give them an option. I'm going to say, we're either going to go to Harney Sushi in Old Town. Oh, my probably, gosh. Which is probably our favorite sushi spot. Yeah. I love it and has been for a long time. Or the other place, and I don't even know if it's still around, bro, to be honest with you, because we... I've been so locked down with this pandemic thing as far as going out to eat. But our we used to go to this steak place called Cowboy Star. Probably one of the best meals that I've ever been. I think it's in like East Village. And those are my two kind of like go-to if I get if we get like a adult night out to go have a couple spirits, a couple cocktails, right. And a great meal. That those are my jam right there. Well, JT, I just I wanna say thank you very much for joining me and and just you know, talking about your love for San Diego and, and I mean, I can't believe that, you know, I've, I've known about you since what, what, what year are we in 2022? So I've known about you for 21 years. How old are you, bro? Man, we're getting old, bro. Uh, I'm 42. Okay. I'm 48. So, okay. So, so I've known you for shoot almost half my life or known who you are for almost half my life. And, and, um, and I love your family and everything like that. And I just want to say thank you for, um, for joining us on this uh, Rick Wilson, San Diego podcast and telling us why you love San Diego so much. Well, right. I appreciate the invitation, man. It was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, this is Rick Willis in San Diego and we will talk to you sooner than later. <laughs> <laughs>